Okay, thanks, Uday, and, and Shai, thanks to you as well. It's fantastic to be back in Cambridge. Let's see if we have an image. Yeah, we do. Um, so the title says, Forget About uh, VCs. Well, I don't want to necessarily forget about them forever. But at the beginning, maybe we ought to forget about them. And here's why. I want to start with some data, um, some kind of uncomfortable data from a guy named Fred Wilson. Some of you may read his blog. He's a VC in New York. Here's what he says. The more money that goes into your new venture early, the worse your chance for success. Is that what you came to hear tonight? <laughs> Maybe not, right? OK, so question for you, why might that be so? If he's right and he believes that's true, why would that be true? Would you talk with your neighbor? I want to hear from you the three top reasons why this would be true if it's true. OK, go. Couple of minutes. Okay. So let's hear your answers. Couple of reasons. Can I have a reason from the cheap seats, please? One reason. One reason. Ah, okay, reason number one is it kills your incentive to work hard. Kills your creativity, kills your incentive to work hard. Okay, another reason. Somebody in here. You somehow think that uh, seed money is validation from the market. Ah, you think you've been validated. Yeah, when those are two completely different. When the market has said nothing. Yeah? yeah? What else? It uh, depends on the sample. Uh, so you think his data might be skewed, and it's just a little period of time saying that, but it's not real. You're worried about. OK. Here's, here, here's my take on it. Number one, <laughs> kind of makes you sloppy, doesn't it, when you have a lot of money in the bank? Maybe even stupid, right? Number two, plan A, we know most of the time, Uday was just talking about it, took the seventh. Let's see, that's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Plan A doesn't typically work, nor does plan B or C. But eventually, you get to the plan that works. But once somebody writes a check for plan A, what do you believe? Man, it's going to work, right? So you get kind of hunkered down into plan A, and you say, OK. I'm going to do it. And your funder, what does he want you to do? Implement plan A, right? So that's what you go out to do, even though it hasn't been validated. OK. So I want to suggest to you tonight that maybe it might be advised, you might be well advised as an entrepreneur to wait and seek funding until you've got real customer traction. OK? Now, you're going to say, John, how's that possible? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you it's possible. Um, but first, Here's some things you shouldn't do. So I think you're going to know the guy who's going to help me with this. Here's what I think we shouldn't do. I've got some business idea that I just want to tell you about. And I'll be foolish very quickly. What is the most popular thing in the world? Music. No. Tell me. Ice cream. Everyone has it. 
And what is the problem with ice cream? I have no idea. It drips. Okay. So me idea is what? You to make a drip-proof ice cream. No, that's a fucking brilliant idea. This. All right, whatever. You ain't gonna come out with that though. No, I, I promise you I won't. Well, me idea is to come out with just like these ice cream gloves that make the ice cream not go on your hands and make it all well sticky. <laughs> and also keep your hands warm okay. when, when you is eating the ice cream. Okay. Is you win or is you eat? Okay, well, it sounds like a good idea and I hope you make a lot of money. Good luck, folks. It's been nice seeing you. You take care of yourself, okay? Well, you're going to be in on that. Well, it sounds like an interesting We've got that like, P. Diddy is going to be in it. Good. <laughs>
it's high risk to raise money early, right? You haven't proven there's a market. Maybe the technology doesn't work yet. So the investor, rightfully so, is going to ask for a significant stake in the business to mitigate that downside risk, right? And even worse, that investment will come with a bunch of baggage called a shareholders agreement. And when you read it, you want to go to the bathroom and throw up, right? It's very one-sided most of the time to compensate for the great deal of risk that the investor is taking. Okay, so this is not necessarily what the entrepreneur had in mind, but I argue that that's actually bad for the investor as well. Here's why. So number one, it's a distraction for the, for the entrepreneur to raise money early, right? Well, once check number one comes in, to what do you think the entrepreneur's attention now turns? Where can I find check number two? Right? So it's not just a distraction at the beginning. It remains a distraction from the life, through the life of the venture because you're always saying, where can I get the next check? How long is this money going to last? Okay, That's number one. And then number two, those other two issues mean that at some point, the investor and the entrepreneur's interests are going to become misaligned. The investor's wanna, going to want to exit or sell it or get out of it or whatever, and the entrepreneur's not going to be ready. Okay? So I think it's a, it's a bad deal. Now, let me show you some evidence that might surprise you a bit. Uh, I know in the back these may be hard to see, so let me explain. This, uh, this, this uh, vertical axis is the internal rate of return on venture capital funds, fund by fund by fund. Josh Lerner at Harvard collected all the data from literally every fund since the beginning of time in the industry, way back years ago through 2011. And as you can see, the best fund did pretty well, right? 700% return on investment every year for the 10-year life of the fund. Was that a good fund? We'd all like to have our pensions invested in that fund, right? That was a good one, okay? But were there a lot of those funds that are that good? Very few, right? Okay, and then there's at the, the other end of the scale, there were some funds that managed to lose not some of, but all of the investors' money, right? Okay, and then there's the vast bunch in the middle. What jumps off the page there to you? What do you see? Did all the funds make money? No, they didn't. Did a lot of them not make money? Yeah, they did, right? About a fifth of them, something like, you know, this part right here, delivered negative returns, right? And then another maybe two-fifths, the middle of the curve, delivered low single-digit returns. Is that what the investors were expecting? Certainly not. What would you expect a venture capital fund to deliver in terms of annual returns? Somebody throw out a number. 50, somebody said. That's a little high. 25? 30, somewhere in there, you might think that, well, you know, I'm only doing this high-risk investment as a pension fund to get higher returns, right? Otherwise, I could put the money in the stock market or bonds. So if you'd say 25%, say, and you draw the 25% line across, how many funds actually delivered that? Something like 1 in 10, right? How's the performance, guys? It's not very good, is it? And in fact, if you look at the broad middle part of the curve, virtually all of the money is delivering low single digit or negative returns. 
Now, what they're doing is investing that money in companies like yours, right? And with the check they give you, what else is going to come along with it? Their help. Would you like the help of these guys? Is that the kind of help you need to grow your business? I'm not so sure, right? So I'm really worried as entrepreneurs that we go out and think these guys are going to write us checks, and then they're going to help us build a business. I'm not sure I, as an entrepreneur, actually want that kind of help, given their performance to date. Right? Very few funds do very well. And there's one thing that's even worse. In the good funds, let's say there are you know, 10 or 20 companies in that fund that they invested in. How many of those companies do well, that is, make a bunch of money? One. Most of the funds, actually, it's none, right? That's why we got this data. But in the good ones, it's one, maybe two. You know, There's a Google, there's a Facebook, something like that in the fund. All the rest of the companies don't pay back their investment. In fact, the data shows that three quarters of all venture capital-backed companies fail to return the capital they are given. That is, they don't get back to zero, three quarters of them. So is that the lottery you'd like to play with your company? I'm not so sure. All right, so I'm really worried about the data, and I'm really worried about the observations that Fred Wilson has. So is there an alternative, John? You might say, well, it turns out there's an alternative. In fact, there are five alternatives. There are five ways I've identified that one can customer fund your business, OK? These five ways. So you can have matchmaker models. We know what those are, eBay. Uh, Airbnb, all that kind of stuff, right? Where you're just a matchmaker, you never own the stuff that gets bought or sold. You're just in the middle matching people up. And because building stuff on the internet is cheap today, you can do that with very little money. And the fees you get from making the matches are sufficient to build a business. So that's a nice one. Pay in advance models, you simply get the customer to pay when? In advance, before you give them the goods, right? OK, not too hard, at least conceptually, right? Subscription models, we all subscribe to stuff, right? We subscribe to cable TV, periodicals of various kinds, Netflix, all those kinds of things. When do we pay? At the beginning, at least in part. And then the goods gets delivered over time. So when does the company have our money? Before they have to deliver. Scarcity-based models, we, how many shop at Zara in the room? You got any Zara customers here? Yeah, we got a few, right? Zara has figured something out that's making the rest of the retailing industry, where I used to work, by the way, uh, have a really difficult time. They figured out that instead of selling as much as they can of every style for the highest price they can, they limit it. We're only going to make so much of each style, and when it's gone, it's gone. And we're going to price it really competitively. And so when the customer comes in and finds something they like, typically a fashion-oriented customer, do they say, well, let me see. I'll wait till the end of the season and see if it goes on sale? They don't. They say, I've got to buy it today, because if I don't buy it today, it's going to be gone tomorrow. So Zara is able to turn its inventory radically faster than the rest of the apparel industry. And uh, as you know, they've done really, really well by being scarce rather than abundant. And then service to product models. <clears throat> you can start a service business, almost any service, with the customer's money, because this customer, we as customers expect to pay for services in advance, right? Um, so you can start as a service, but perhaps down the way, after you've done a, a bunch of services, you say, hey, wait a second, I've learned enough here that I can maybe flip the service business 
into a productized business that can be much more scalable and where the delivery can stand on its own. Okay, so what I'd like to do is um, give you some examples. But first, this question. Is there anything new there? There's nothing new there, right? Okay, pay in advance models. Michael Dell, when he was in his dorm room at the University of Texas, said to the customer, the small business customers he sold to first, you want a computer, I'll build you exactly the computer you want, I'll sell it to you for less than you can buy it at the computer store, but you have to pay me in advance. Not rocket science, right? If you want to fix your kitchen, or, you, or your family wants to remodel their house, when do you pay the architect or the designer? Well, you start paying some of the money in advance, okay? So it's very common, actually, to have pay in advance businesses. Matchmakers, eBay, Expedia, all the others, right? Lots of them today. We all know that. Subscriptions, same thing. Lots of those. Zara is a well-known scarcity model. And little known, Microsoft started as a service business. Bill Gates and Paul Allen wrote the operating systems for the first whole bunch of PC makers back a long time ago. And each one of those was a service contract. Yes, we'll write you an operating system for your new PC because everybody was trying to imitate IBM. Well, they wrote one after another after another, and pretty good. Pretty soon they got good at it, and they said, you know what? We could take these operating systems, all of which look kind of the same, and we could put them in a shrink wrap box and we could sell it as a product. And then, of course, application software followed, and the rest is history. But that's where the value got created, not in the basic services, but when they productized that business. OK, now, let's look at some cool stories from the current century. First guy I want to tell you about is this guy, Vinay Gupta. Uh, he's in India. And in 2006, he was observing the travel industry in India. If you wanted to fly from a small city in India and get to, say, Delhi, next Wednesday, where do you suppose you got your ticket back in 2006? What would you guess? Where? From whom? From a travel agency, right? A mom and pop travel agency, right? OK, so there are all these mom and pop travel agencies, and they were selling airline tickets, but there was a problem. None of them had real-time ticketing capabilities. So you'd go in and say, I've got to go to Delhi next Wednesday. They'd say, great, we'll find out when the flights are and what they cost. Come back tomorrow, and we'll give you the ticket. Very inefficient system. And so Gupta said, if I could give the online travel or the uh, brick-and-mortar travel companies real-time ticketing capability, and if I could build scale and thereby give them better commissions than they're now getting, because as mom and pops, they were getting very poor commissions, maybe I could build a business. So he went to the travel agents, and he said, here's the deal. You give me a rolling $5,000 deposit against which you issue tickets, okay? So I never have to worry about credit, right? You, you're just keeping $5,000 there, and in return, I will give you real-time ticket access. I'll connect you into the Amadeus global distribution system, and I'll give you better commissions than you're getting now. In two months, he signed up 170 travel agents in Bangalore and Chennai. Do the math. 170 travel agents, $5,000 a pop. How much money has he got to start and run the business? 850K. Does that go a long way in India in 2006? A lot of money, right? Okay, Paid in advance to fund the business. Long story short, he began to grow the business. An angel investor then came in, 
who had a bunch of really good contacts in the in industry that made it even grow faster. Then they took a little venture capital money later to say, hey, we're doing this for airline tickets. Maybe we could also be the travel experts in bus and rail and hotels and so on. So they now do that. They are the intel inside of the Indian travel industry today, but nobody's ever heard of them. Last year, their revenue, top line revenue, was half a billion US dollars. That's revenue. How old's the business? Eight years, right? Would that be OK for your new venture, zero to half a billion in eight years? OK? Nice growth, right? Funded how? At the beginning, all by the customer's cash. OK, second one. You may know these guys. You know the business. Who stayed in an Airbnb property? A bunch of you, I bet, have, right? OK, do you know the story of how it started? Two guys, graduates of the Rhode Island School of Design, designer, artsy types, living in San Francisco, trying to make ends meet and pay the rent. I have a daughter who's a designer. I know how hard it is for young people who are designers to pay the rent, right? And uh, they said, well, you know, there's this, co this uh, conference coming to town. It's a big design conference, and there aren't enough hotel rooms. Why don't we get some air mattresses, put them on the floor, and we'll let some people stay in our place, right, our flat. So they did that. They fed them breakfast, so kind of air, you know, mattress and B, breakfast, B and B, Airbnb, and they made some money and they paid the rent. Then there was another conference coming to town, so they did it again, did it again. And then in 2008, the Democratic National Convention in the US was going to Denver. Denver has 30,000 hotel rooms, and there were 100,000 guests expected. Is there an opportunity here to build a business? They said, yeah. So they found some buddies who would hit the streets and try and sign up people with spare bedrooms and extra couches where they'd be wel wel willing to welcome a couch surfer and, and so on, and built up the supply side of their inventory. But they also had to build a demand side. And to do that, they had to figure out something that would get them noticed, because they were completely off the radar. They'd launched several times and relaunched several times. One of the good things actually about internet businesses, you can launch, and if nobody notices, <laughs> you can launch again. <laughs> right? So that's what they did again and again and again. So here it is now, the Democratic Convention. Another chance, right? Only this time it's national. We got a really big chance. So they did a cool stunt. I, I think you probably know the breakfast cereal called Cheerios, right? Little round oat O's. You can buy them in specially made boxes. I don't know if you know that. So they bought a whole bunch of boxes of Cheerios, and they called them Obama O's. <laughs> 50 bucks a box. They also bought a bunch of another cereal called Captain Crunch, and they called that Captain McCain's. You know, John McCain was the other candidate. Turned out the Captain McCain's didn't sell very well to the Democratic <laughs> audience. So they ate them for breakfast for a long, long time. But the uh, Obama O's sold out at 50 bucks a box, which did two things. Number one, it gave them some cash, sorely needed. Pretty good margins on Cheerios at 50 bucks a box, right? Number two, it got them noticed. So they got a, an interview on CNN that then translated into lots of newspaper stories. So they got noticed, and Paul Graham at Y Combinator heard of that and invited him in and said, maybe there's an interesting business here. So they went into Y Combinator for a couple of months. Then they attracted venture capital from the likes of Jeff Bezos and Mark Andreessen, and off they went. Today, they have 
800,000 properties on the website in nearly 200 companies. And I'm told that at the Apple iPhone 6 launch, you know, a few weeks ago, that you could rent on, um, on Airbnb a tent at the front of the queue at the Apple store in San Francisco. <laughs> OK. Funded how? Just by the fees that these people were paying to get matched up, OK, in the early days. Venture capital came later. OK, another Indian guy, uh, Ganesh, in 2005, uh, was in the US, actually. And you wouldn't have seen this cartoon. I don't know if you can read what that says. It says, father to kid, no, you can't outsource your homework to India, right? <laughs> well, Ganesh was in the US and saw this cartoon. He also saw a whole bunch of headlines that were bemoaning the fact that mathematics education in the US isn't what it needs to be. We're losing to the Koreans, and we're losing to the people from Singapore, and so on. Lots of turmoil about education. And he said, you know, in India, we're pretty good at math. And in India, we have a lot of teachers. We're pretty good teachers of math, and they don't get paid very well. Could I bring together the Indian mathematics teaching capability, and maybe other subjects too, with American kids whose parents are both working but need help with their homework? Could I bring those two parties together and use the internet to do it? So we built a very simple WebEx uh, interface, hired three teachers, put them in a room in Bangalore, and got some Americans to sign up and start testing the idea. Uh, he was selling it for 20 bucks an hour at the beginning. But that was, turned out to be difficult, actually, because the parents, it's not the kid paying, right? It's the parent paying. But the parent doesn't really know when the kid's going to need help. And so when do you pay, all that, it was awkward. So he said, well, how about if we just charge him a flat fee, a subscription, 100 bucks a month? $100 a month, all the kid wants, doesn't matter how much help he needs, there'll be somebody there to help the kid, right? Um, relieves the parent's guilt, and it's the price of taking the family out for pizza. Uh, very quickly, they discovered that the renewal rate for the subscriptions was north of 50%, 5-0. Do you have a business? Big time, right? Okay. So, and when does the money come in? Beginning of the month. When do you pay the Indian teacher? Not very much, but you got to pay him eventually, <laughs> right? But when do you pay him? After the end of the month. And meanwhile, what do you have? You have a bunch of cash in the business, and what do you do with that cash? You invest it in Google AdWords and so on to grow the business, okay? It grew very, very fast, and in 2011, they sold it to Pearson for just north of $200 million. Nice deal, single largest employer of teachers, private sector employer of teachers in India today. Okay, the name of the company, Tudor Vista. They now do it in the UK as well. Okay, this guy you probably won't have heard of. Um, French guy, he and his partners had a business uh, in Paris that did something important for the French apparel industry. The designer apparel guys make mistakes like the rest of us do, right? And they make too much of some styles, or they buy too much of some fabrics, and they got to get rid of the stuff. Well, what's the best way to do that? Well, these guys were in the business of running sort of underground fashion sales to discreetly get rid of the overstocks and the mistakes that the fashion industry had to get rid of, okay? Without disturbing the fancy image on the Champs-Élysées. Running very nicely, and then the internet came along, and he said to his partners in 2001, now 13 years ago, you know, 
if we could do this on the internet, we wouldn't be restricted to doing it just in Paris. We could hit all of France, okay? So let's build a little website, and here's the deal. We're gonna run a three-day sale, and we're gonna get, the, get a sample of the closeout goods that the apparel maker wants to get rid of, and we'll have a really good-looking model wear that stuff in a really nicely choreographed ad. And the customers are then gonna buy it, and at the end of the three days, we'll total up how much we've sold, and by the way, when do we get the money for it? On the day they order, of course. Then we'll issue a purchase order to the apparel maker to deliver the goods directly to the consumer, and when do, the, do we pay the apparel maker? 60 days later. Apparel, uh, the apparel maker's happy, they got rid of their goods. We're happy because we've got the customer's cash for how many days? Something like 60 days, and what do we do with that cash? We plan another sale for another style, and we build another movie, and, and off it goes. So they grew the business organically very nicely until 2005. Nobody really kind of saw it. And in 2005, they, they ran their first sale in the lingerie category. Well, the sale got headlines, because these nice movies of lingerie, closeouts, you can imagine the headlines, right? And the category got discovered. So quickly, all over Europe, everybody piled into the category and said, I know, I know somebody in apparel, and I can write code. I'm going to build one of these websites. It's easy to do, right? So Europe got covered with these websites. And they said, OK, we've got to raise some capital. We'll get some private equity money so we can also go to these other European countries and eventually to the US, which they've done now. But they didn't do very well in the rest of Europe. They're still dominant in France, but there were a couple of problems. Number one, the, the company who's first in this category seems to take a lot of the action. But number two is what happened with the apparel makers. Imagine in a financial crisis when sales all of a sudden turn down, the apparel makers have a problem, and they're really happy to have these guys take that goods off their hand, right? What happens when times are good? And you have all these companies beating down your store, your door, saying, give me your closeouts. What do you do if you're a manufacturer? One thing you do is raise the price, right? Second thing you do is say, well, we'll make some more. We can get some more of that fabric. We'll make you some more. So all of a sudden, it's now not really a deal, right? They're just making special goods, fewer stitches per inch, cheaper fabrics, and so on, for what has become a new and quite large distribution channel, but the value is gone. So I've studied these flash sales merchants in the research that led to the book, and there's only one of them that I can find that's actually making money. The rest of them have a lot of cash, but they can't make money because the margins just aren't there. And the one that's making money is Zulily. They're in Seattle, and they sell stuff to young mothers for their infant and toddler kids. Um, so it seems to me that if you're going to be in flash sales, either your name begins with Z, Z, right? Zulily and Zara, or it's not going to work. OK. Ulrich and Molsholm, two Danes in 2003 said, you know, these are two advertising guys in Copenhagen, uh, one a creative type and one an account executive type. They said, you know, the internet should be the new big thing for advertisers, but it's actually not working very well. Why? Well, banner ads were the uh, 
you know, the common means of advertising at the time, and banner ad click-throughs were falling, and the rates were, were falling, and it wasn't really working well for the advertisers. So nobody was really very happy with banner ads. And they said, what the web needs is video. This is before YouTube, okay? So they said, I wonder how we could do it. Well, let's, let's create a campaign. So they found a friend with a company and said, can we create a campaign for you that we will host for you? We'll create the video and we'll host it. And we're going to create it so cool that when we send it out, everybody who gets it is going to send it on to their friends. And it's going to be so cool, it's going to go viral, hence the name of the company, OK? So they did it, and the first campaign worked really well. So they did another campaign, and it worked, and another one, and so on. Then Nissan came along and launched a brand called the Qashqai. Does anybody drive one of those? OK. It was a car intended for sort of the Gen X audience. And Nissan's image, is that a, exactly a Gen X image? At Nissan, not exactly, right? It's a little older and stodgier. So these guys convinced Nissan that we are the way to get you to Gen X. Nissan bought the pitch and started investing heavily in this technology and in in this business in order to really, really grow it. Well, it worked really well, and Nissan did really well, which gave them some powerful stories to tell to the rest of the ad industry. Then what happened in 2005 is YouTube launched. Do you think that's good news? or bad news for Go Viral? What do you think? Opportunity, somebody said. Why? Because we've got the expertise to do this for advertisers and make it go viral. And YouTube is telling the world that video online is now cool, right? So this turned out to be a really good thing. So they had the story of Nissan to tell. So they got on the, on the stage at the Cannes Lion Advertising Festival, which is the big annual ad festival that the whole European ad industry goes to every year, talking about the power of, every, of uh, online viral video. Well, if you're on stage talking as the experts about online viral in, uh, video to the entire European ad industry, you must know what you're talking about, right? Okay. In spite of the fact that it was a two-and-a-half-person company at the time, these two guys and half a programmer. Okay. It started to grow. Another guy then came along who altered the vision a little bit and said, you know, we don't need to create the ads. Let's let the ad agencies create the ads. That's what they want to do. Let's build a, the technology behind it to host and measure the reach of those ads when they get launched. So they focused on the technology, grew it really fast. And in Danish, Kroner went from 10 million to 20 to 40 to 60 to 100 million Kroner. And in 2010, AOL came knocking, wanted to go to Europe and was trying to reformat their, their business. And these guys sold the business to AOL for $97 million. It was, let's see, it would have been seven years old. And they had not invested a single Danish kroner in the business ever. OK? So customer funding, that is, in this case, paying for the campaigns before they run, right, can sometimes get you started. But in this case, it can take you all the way. OK, so let's see. How are we doing on time? Good. Um, 
some things in common here. Number one, all these companies have something in common that, that your accounting professor would call negative working capital. In most businesses, you need a bunch of cash to fund what is called working capital. Maybe it's inventory for a retail store or fund the, the bills that your customers haven't paid you. But with these models, working capital is actually negative. That means you have more cash lying around in your bank account than you actually need to pay your current bills, and you can use that money to grow. So that's one thing. Second thing that's in common about them is they required essentially no capital, not always precisely zero, but very close to zero, to get started, okay? And then third, most of them, not go viral, but the others raised VC, but they raised it to grow, not to start, but to grow. And when you raise it to grow and you've been customer funded, you already have a proven business, right? Because by definition, you've got customers paying you for what it is you sell, okay? Can you raise money on better terms if that's the case? Vastly better terms, okay? And that's the power, okay. Now, the stories I've just told you are stories sort of of pioneers, each in their niche. I want to tell you a story of one that's not a pioneer, to say that this is not just some rare, isolated phenomenon, and you too can do it. You probably can't see the sign in the middle. It says Pension Alberti. This is a one-star hotel in Barcelona. It is not fancy, okay? In 2003, what sort of internet presence do you think it had? Nada, right, in Spanish, none, right? There was a guy named John Erseg who was an MBA graduate of the IESA business school, good business school in Barcelona. And Erseg, uh, interesting guy, he was sort of a middle-of-the-pack middle guy in business school. Um, and, and so when the consultants and the iBankers came around, he wasn't getting on the interview lists. Uh, there was a Moroccan chicken farming startup that came around, but he didn't get that job either. But he did get a job with HP, Hewlett-Packard, in Spain. Hewlett-Packard has big uh, employment base in Spain. So he learned to be a product manager at HP. And he worked there for four years, from 96 to 2000. And if you can imagine what people were thinking about working in any tech firm in the late 90s, the world was just ablaze with the tech revolution and rising valuations and entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I got to go do this myself. So he left HP and started a business. And because what he had learned at, at HP was about digital printing, that's what HP did, he found some people with some kind of new paradigm technology for remote digital printing, got involved, spent two years, lost 50,000 euros on the business. Didn't work. Then he started a second business. That one only took a year to fail, and he only lost seven grand. Okay, so the, mo the needle's moving in the right direction, right? <laughs> um, so he said to his girlfriend, Lucia, or maybe Lucia said to him, I'm not sure which way it went, um, you know, enough of this new paradigm stuff. Maybe we ought to do something really simple that we understand, and the customers might understand. Why don't we just buy a flat and we'll rent it to tourists? That's about as simple as you can get, right? Uh, Lucia, his girlfriend, was a dentist. Now his wife, then his girlfriend. 
was a dentist, so she had good credit. And in those days, you could get really good mortgages in Spain, unlike today. So they bought a flat, and immediately it turned cash flow positive. And they said, wow, this is fantastic. Let's buy another one. So they bought another flat. And that, too, did pretty well. But now they had more capacity, right, that they had to fill. So John said, well, maybe I better build a website so I can you know, get more traffic. And once he built a he didn't know how to write code, but he figured it out and built a rudimentary website. Once they built a website, he said, we got a website, and we're selling our two properties, but couldn't we sell other properties like that one, right? So we went around Barcelona knocking on the doors of all the low-end, simple, one-star and two-star places where lots of people wanted to stay who were flying Ryanair to Barcelona, right? You're not spending much on the flight, and you're not spending much on the hotel either, because you want to spend the money on the fun, right? The other, the other stuff in Barcelona, OK? So the business started to grow, and it grew organically. And here's the deal. He would go to the hotel, and he'd say, would you like more traffic? I can generate more traffic for you from my, my website, which then was called Barcelona30.com, OK? So I'll get, bring you more traffic. You let me charge the customer 15% of the stay, and the customer will then pay you the other 85% when they get there. Okay? No invoicing to do, no paperwork. You just collect the money on a credit card. You got 15% of a stay. The average stay was about 300 euros, so you have about 45 euros in your bank. Okay? And what do you have to do with that money? Do you have to pay it to anybody? Now, really, your job's done, right? You made the booking. So what do you do with it? You invest it in more web stuff and in feed on the street to go bang on doors and get more properties. The business grew organically, funded by the 15% deposits. They opened Madrid. Then they opened London. Then they opened Paris. And then they said, you know, this is really working in 2006 when they went from just kind of a break-even business in the early years to all of a sudden it reached scale and flipped, and he made half a million euros in 2006. And he said, we've really got something here. What are we going to do with a half million euros? Let's invest it in a land grab, and we're going to get all the one- and two-star properties in Europe before anybody else gets them. Because you know, there's lots of competition, right? Expedia and everybody. But they were thinking about the chains and the places they could reach more easily. They couldn't be bothered with these mom-and-pop one-star places. So Budget Places, now the name of the business, grew very fast. And in 2010, he remembered something he had heard from a professor in B school about John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, the American uh, entrepreneur and philanthropist. Rockefeller said, I made all my money selling too early. And Ersig said, I wonder if I should sell the business. So he decided to do that, sold the business in 2011 for 25 million euros, having invested what? A little bit. There were some operating losses along the way. Total investment was about 75,000 along the way. And he earned 25 million. He's now in the happy position of deciding what to do with his 25 million. <laughs> OK, so you don't have to be a pioneer, and you can do this. OK, so what about you? So how many people in the room have an idea for a new venture? 
show of hands, please. Who's got ideas for new venture? A lot of you do. OK. So task for you, which one of the five models could you put to work in your new business? Could you do a pay in advance model, a matchmaker model, subscription, scarcity, service to product, talk to your neighbor, which one of these models might actually work for the idea you have? Go. Two minutes. <laughs> OK, guys. <laughs> which did you choose? So we got a lot of people in the room. I can't ask you all which did you choose and what did you choose, but what I often see is pay in advance. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of asking them for money up front. Good idea, right? Now, it means you better have something they want to buy, right? And if you don't have something they want to buy and they don't want to pay you advance, is that good information to have earlier rather than later? I think so. Yeah, so five models, five ways to do it. OK, so let's wrap up. What should you do? Well, what you shouldn't do, I think, is go write a 40-page business plan, whole bunch of spreadsheets, all for plan A that you've lovingly embraced, but that probably isn't going to get you where you, where you want to go, right? So you shouldn't do that. What should you do? Well, you should ring the cash register. Get somebody to start paying you using one of these five models and let the business get going. Now, have I said this is easy? No, I haven't. It's hard. It, all the entrepreneurship stuff's hard. That's why Shai does this, to help you with some of these pitfalls. But have we seen both goods and services here? We have. Have we seen B2B and B2C? We have. So this is not just some isolated phenomenon. You can't do this for every business. OK, fair enough. You probably can't start a biotech this way, right? That's going to take more money, OK? But lots of the things you have in mind, you can do that way. OK, now, have I said angel capital or venture capital is bad? I have not said that, right? In fact, most of these companies, all but go viral, did raise venture capital. But what I worry about is the timing. Don't take it up front, OK? But if you've got a venture that's really cooking, that's the time to raise external capital and fund that growth. OK. Now, just one more bit of data, and I'm going to close. Here are some rejection rates. You know, you might say at some point you want to get VC, but the question is going to be, can I get it from one of the good guys? Well, here's how hard it is, guys. Y Combinator last year rejected 97% of the applicants. OK? AngelList, 99%. OK? It's kind of like trying to get into Cambridge, right? Andreessen Horowitz, 99.3%. In fact, Mark Andreessen says his day job is learning how to say no to people nicely enough so they don't hate him. <laughs> OK. Now, might pursuing customer funding be a better way to go? Better way to use your precious time, your very important time? Perhaps. OK, final observation. Who's written a business plan in the room? Anybody? Yo, a bunch of you have. Did you write these three words? We believe that blah, 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 blah. Do you remember? Did you write those three words? Not sure. OK, some of you, you did, right? May I translate what I think you meant by, write, by those three we, words? We've been so busy writing this business plan, 
that we've had no time to go get any real evidence. But we fervently hope and pray that blah, 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 blah. Okay? Okay. Now, it turns out I think you know there's a really good book on this topic, right? Uh, it's out in the lobby. David Rose, founder of the New York Angels, says you ought to read it before you go raise money. Uh, there are 48 copies out there. You can buy one tonight for 20 quid, and I will sign it and put a personal note in it to you if you like. So they're out there, but that's all we were able to bring. Okay? Uh, there's another really good book. <laughs> Great way to assess. Is the opportunity I have in mind actually worth my time and trouble to pursue? Important question you might want to ask yourself. Uh, there's an app to help you gather that data, so you could do that. But in a nutshell, I think we all know in, in these kind of communities that the customer is king. But maybe what we didn't know is that the customer can be our VC, too. <coughs> 